Bibles with me this morning. Let's turn together to the book of Nehemiah this morning. Let's return to the book of Nehemiah together. We're turning this morning in our time in God's Word to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. So we come to God's Word. We left off last week together at the end of Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll pick up this morning in our verse-by-verse study, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. Join me there. And it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was put before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, Well, then what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, The queen, also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall. And for the house that I will occupy and build. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite officials heard, it, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed, grieved, that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. The title of the message this morning is The Proactive and Prayerful Life. The Proactive and Prayerful Life. It may even seem as if those two things are at odds, a juxtaposition. Sometimes we find in our thinking wrongly that those who are prayerful are those who are Luddites. They are those who sit in ivory towers. They are those who are monkish. They are those who are passive. Those who pray are those who, yeah, 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 we know we're all supposed to pray, but those who pray and only pray, they don't quite get, get it done. That's the way we think. It is. In fact, we can belittle prayer and the work of prayer, the means of prayer. 
And so we think, well, what we need in the culture, what we need in the church, what we need in society is those who are proactive. We need those who know how to get it done. And so we put our actions and our focus and our energies into action-oriented items and those types of things. And if we're not careful, we leave off the spiritual means of so- the source of power, which is, which is prayer. So the title this morning, as we look at the text at Nehemiah's life, is this, the prayerful and proactive life. And I want to set before you that these two things go together, to be prayerful and proactive. They go together. And if you can only pick one, the best one to do would be to be prayerful. Better to be prayerful and not proactive and watch the hand of God at work than to be proactive and absolutely leave off prayer and to work in the realm of the flesh, which the apostle reminds us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh profits nothing. Well, as we come to Nehemiah chapter 2, we continue our study at this remarkable book. It's a very practical book. It's real life. We come to a man at a, who lives at a certain place at a certain time, and we're seeing how the Lord raises him up and uses him because of his faith. The faith that Nehemiah has causes him to make a difference right there in his world for the glory of God. Luther said this, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. Faith is so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse 23, reminds us that that all things are possible to him who believes, to those who come in prayer and faith believing. Matthew records in Matthew 17 that living faith can move mountains. What kind of mountains, Legrand? Mountains like changing the heart of king Artaxerxes. So we look here at Nehemiah's life, we see that Nehemiah is faced with an impossible situation. He's 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Last week together we saw that he asked a question of his brothers, Hanani and others, and he received the report of the devastation of Jerusalem, the state of the walls and the glory of God. And he's grieved This is an impossible situation. It's more than likely, commentators tell us, that Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He's lived his whole life in exile. He's 800 miles away from it. And he feels cut off. Not only is this an impossible situation because of geographical distance, but he has a pagan, mercurial boss who's going to have to approve this mission. He's going to have to understand his burden. He's going to need to catch... The burden and vision that Nehemiah has from the Lord. It's an impossible situation because he has a project that the size of the project seems completely insurmountable. It has no budget. There's no funds to undergird it. There's no way being 800 miles away for Nehemiah to assess and to measure the needs. All Nehemiah knows is this. God's glory is at stake. There is a God in heaven, and right now his people are in shambles. Nehemiah cannot bear the thought of his people, his city, his God being reproached. You see, I think that's just the problem, though. Here we are as Christians living in 2024, 
And the reality is, is we're all too comfortable with our God being reproached. As we think about the state of the church in the world today, the state of the church in our nation today, friends, I don't need to go on and on, but it's in shambles. It has no power. The church of Jesus Christ today is not living in the power that it has through the Spirit of God and the means of God. We saw last week that for something to become powerful, it must become personal on the individual level. As we think about the needs of our lives today, as we think about the needs of the church today, as we think about the glory of God today, church, I just want to remind us that it's got to become powerful on an individual, personal level. It's got to be, what can I do about this? What can we do about this? Not just look at the problem. And the reality was, was for far too long, the people of God had gotten used to the rubble. The rubble and the, sham- the wall being in shambles was normalized to that's just the way the rubble was. In my reading this week, around the world, uh, there are coliseums and ancient sites that are now in rubbles. And so societies have adjusted, adjusted to that. They have planted flowers in the rubble. They have redesigned the rubble. The rubble is now the site and the rubble is normal and all of those types of things. And so it's good. And the people are, are good with the rubble. And far too often, I think that's the way it is with the church. We're content at being at ease in Zion. We're content. We're ashamed in the sense of we say, well, that's sin and, and that's wrong. And then we continue on our merry way. Are, are we burdened? Do we fast? Do we pray? Do we ask God to bring again a visitation that brings Him glory, a visitation of His Spirit, the preaching of the Word of God? Do we ask of the Lord to do something about it and maybe use us in it? Saying, Lord, not only work, but Lord, would you be pleased to use me in the the work? Last week, we left Nehemiah with his model prayer at the end of chapter 1. We saw that his prayer was steeped in Scripture His view was of a correct view of a holy God. We saw that he was repentant and we saw that all of this was owned, saying, here am I, Lord, send me. And I'll just remind all of us again this morning that that is the secret to being used of God. Is the point of, Lord, how can you use me? How can I play a role? In fact, I will just tell you this, I'll be a little bit raw with you this morning. As a pastor, a lot of my conversations throughout the years, just comprehensively, have been as a pastor, you're constantly letting people know there's often needs and places to serve. I'm not thinking of any one thing or any one area. And oftentimes, you will hear only why people can't do that. I don't know why it is. It's okay. If if you can't do it, that's between you and the Lord. But oftentimes, people will feel the need to come tell you uh, unsolicited why they can't do it. And I'll just be honest with you. So many times the conversation leaves you very drained. It just does. Physiologically, you're you're drained. But I'll never forget talking to a young man who came up to me and said, Pastor, we just had a baby. And you know that. I said, I do. I appreciate you. Appreciate your faithfulness. And we just began to talk. He said, I want you to know, I heard the request or the need uh, this morning on that particular day. And, and what he said always stood out to me. Nothing profound. It just meant a lot to me. And he said, listen, we can't help in that area right now, but I want you to know we want to. And he said, even though we can't, our prayer request between my wife and I has been, Lord, we can't do it, 
but, but we wish we could. And I just wanted you to know that. And I wanted you to know that we'll join you in praying. Well, those conversations don't happen all that often. But hearing the desire behind it, we can't right now, and you know why we can't, but I want you to know we want to. Our heart is, is with you in that. And you say, LeGrand, why did you take the time to tell that story? That's what I'm talking about. The Lord knows exactly where you're at in your life right now. And he knows, he's ordained, he's guided you to this point. And as you think about the advance of his kingdom, as you think about the teaching and preaching of the gospel and your support of the gospel, as you think about this, just your role in the church and your role in serving the Lord, it all begins with the desire. It all begins with a desire that may not mean that you're the one leading or helping or going, but it could just mean on the most minimal level that you're the one praying and interceding and saying, God, would you bless this effort, this minister, this particular need? And Lord, if it be your will, would you be so kind in showing me my role that I can play in the support of whatever that is? Now, I would be remiss if I didn't also add to that so many of you here at Grace, you're a great blessing. Because you come and say, how can I serve? How can I meet this need? How can I fit in and fulfill the needs that are here present at, at the church? Well, this morning, as we look here at Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to frame our thoughts around three succinct headings. Number one, Nehemiah's caution. Number two, Nehemiah's courage. And then number three, Nehemiah's commission. So our outline this morning that we'll walk through is, number one, Nehemiah's caution, number two, Nehemiah's courage, and number three, Nehemiah's commission. First of all, I want you to note, number one, Nehemiah's caution as we look into chapter two, verse one. As we see the scene unfolding before us, there is a gap between chapter one verse 11, where he ends, it says, for I was the king's cupbearer. There's a gap that I'll come to in just a moment between there and chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Here's what I want us to understand here with Nehemiah's caution. Nehemiah had to wait. Nehemiah had to wait. In fact, true faith in God brings a calmness to our hearts that says, Lord, would you lead my steps and prevents those of us who can sometimes be impulsive or hasty. True faith in God prevents us from rushing into what only God can do. The open doors that cannot be kicked down, but the doors that God must open for us. Notice what Nehemiah said there in chapter 1, verse 11. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper. Lord, do what only you can do. Favor my life. Give me advancement. Open the doors. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Chapter 2, verse 1, And it came to pass... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. You say, Legrand, what are we talking about here? From the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, four months have passed. Notice how chapter 1, verse 1, we see the title of a time period. Notice as Kislev or Chislev. 
That is mid-December in the Jewish calendar, or excuse me, not the Jewish calendar, but the calendar of Nehemiah's day there. Chapter 2, verse 1, we see another time period, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan. That is April. So it could literally be rendered one day in April, four months later, after the opening scene of Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah has been waiting under this burden given to him by God for four months. He's been praying. In fact, we can entitle this that Nehemiah is enrolled into God's school of faith. And I would just remind all of us as we are growing in the Lord and in grace, as we are growing in sanctification, friends, you may have graduated from high school, you may have graduated from a program, from college, but listen, you have not graduated from the school of faith. Every single one of us here this morning are students, and we're students in God's school. And in God's school of faith, there are a number of classes still yet to be taken. Some will be enrolled in for the whole of our sanctification journey, the whole of our life. There are certain tests and exams in the school of faith that are particularly hard. And to be quite frank with you, we fail them. We make Fs again and again. And His grace is sufficient. We've known that. We've experienced that. But in this school of faith, we find ourselves needing to stay afterwards sometimes more than others as we work on the spiritual needs that we have as we think about the sins that need to be confessed and mortified, the measures and growth and grace that the Lord is leading us on. And I would just submit to you here in Nehemiah's caution, this is a waiting period. And Nehemiah is very clear as we study this book as a man of action. He's practical. He's, you could tell he's already formulated a plan. He's already thinking about the details. But here, the Lord has him on pause. The Lord has him waiting. And I would say to you this morning, waiting is perhaps one of the most difficult classes that God asks of us. Some people, it's it's easier for them than others. But I think most of us would agree that when the Lord is prompting our hearts, when the Lord is leading us, when we feel like he is placing a burden upon us, it's confusing to us that the Lord says, here's the burden, now wait. Here's the need. Now sit and let that steep a while. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the great need of the hour, the great need of the day. Now let it percolate for a while. But this is a theme in Scripture. Some examples would be Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, where we see the command given as Moses and the children of Israel are standing on the edge of the Red Sea. Stand still and see the salvation of your God. Ruth chapter 3 verse 18 where Naomi tells Ruth after she's met Boaz in the field. Now Ruth, sit still until you know how the matter turns out. Psalm 46 verse 10, be still and know that I am God. But the reality is is that is one of the most hard and most difficult commands for us to obey. For us to glorify God when we're in this situation. But I would also submit to you that it's in the waiting that God wants us to avail ourselves primarily to the discipline of prayer, seeking his face, growing in intimacy and in power with the Lord our God. And church, I just want to remind you this morning that when you wait on the Lord in prayer, you are never wasting your time. In fact, you could say it like this, when you 
spend time with the Lord in prayer, you're investing your time. God is preparing you. God is preparing your family. God is preparing others involved in the situation. God is working in your life and in your circumstances so that His purposes will be accomplished according to His will and for His glory. And I would remind all of us that until that time comes, we would be hasty and foolish to go ahead without the power of God or the obvious work of God before us. So here we see waiting, Nehemiah's caution. He's waiting, he's praying, he's dreaming. In fact, I want you to turn back with me to Ezra chapter 4, and I think this cross-reference going back to Ezra will help us to understand maybe why Nehemiah, not only the Lord is leading him into a period of pause, but it will help us to understand maybe the gravity of the situation, really the impossibility of the situation. God moves mountains. What kind of mountains? Mountains like changing Artaxerxes' heart. Well, we need to understand what we're talking about. So go back to Ezra chapter 4. And the burden of Nehemiah has its roots in the book of Ezra. When an official, a Persian official, beginning in verse 12, named Raham, wrote to King Artaxerxes and informed him that the Jews were attempting to rebuild And he wanted Xerxes to know this is not good. So notice there with me, verse 12, he writes Artaxerxes to notify him that they were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. He says here in chapter 4, verse 12, O king, let it be known that the Jews who came from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. So he notifies the king of the rebuilding of the city. Then in verse 13, he tells the king that if they complete this project and see it through to its completion, one of the pitfalls of it will be that they will not pay taxes. Notice there, let it be known, O king, that if this city is built and the walls are completed, that they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Then thirdly, if you look there in verse 14, he doesn't want to see the king dishonored. And he feels like if the Jews are successful in this rebuilding mission, it'll affect Xerxes' glory. Notice verse 14. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. So we are your servants, and that's my parentheses there. Therefore, we have sent and we have informed the king. Now notice with me in verse 15, he tells the king to check the historical records. And if he did that, if he had his minions do that, his his scribes and historians go back in the record, they would find that Jerusalem was a rebellious city who would be hurtful to the king. In fact, this is why it was destroyed, according to this official, in the first place. Notice, if you go back and search, that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, You will find in the book of records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. Now, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river." Well, what was the result? The result was that King Artaxerxes ordered that the project cease and desist. 
that be absolutely stopped in that moment. Beginning there, continuing in verse 21, it says, Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Notice that phrase, that it not be built, cease and desist, until the command may be given or is given by me. We won't continue in Ezra chapter 4, but Rahum and continuing that rest of that passage details for us that he goes on to do just, just exactly that. So let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. This is the background. The king has ordered Jerusalem to cease from being rebuilt. This is the law of the, the Medes and the Persians. And the only thing that will change it is if the king has a change of heart. If the king orders permission for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Let's just be honest. This is a situation that is impossible. This is the type of situation that you look at and you say, God, if you don't work, this will not happen. Nehemiah is praying. Nehemiah is fasting. Now, there's no doubt Nehemiah is thinking, this will never work. There's no doubt Nehemiah is his own worst enemy as he's thinking thoughts of failure. He's dooming the task in his weaknesses. And then he continues to pray and he says, but God, you are worthy. Lord, you've given me this burden. And whether he knows it or not fully, the Spirit of God has come upon him. And is working in him, giving him a heart that the Lord is creating in him. And so that's why Nehemiah prays there in chapter 1, verse 11. Oh God of heaven, please bless your servant. Please prosper your servant. I just want to ask you this morning. Are you facing an impossible situation? A situation in your life that in your weakness and in your temptation and in the weakness and frailty of your flesh, you're thinking, God, if you don't work, this isn't going to happen. It's impossible. Financially impossible. Relationally impossible. That person has told you, I don't ever want to talk about this ever again. Or they might have said to you, that person you know and love, I don't ever want to speak to you again. There's a relational barrier. Their door is shut. And you just know, God, if you don't change their heart, this situation is impossible. It could be a circumstance or a calling or a situation at work. It could be a matter relating to your future employment. It could be a boss that has it out for you. It could be coworkers that are undermining you. Any number of things. But it's impossible. From every angle as you've looked at it, you're just thinking, this is impossible. Well, listen, Nehemiah is a model for us as he comes with this burden that the Lord has given to him that the only way this is going to happen is if King Xerxes gives him favor. Now, just remember, as through our study of the book of Esther, Xerxes is mercurial. This is a different Xerxes, of course, than what we saw in the book of Esther. But these Eastern Oriental kings were, were crazy, just to put it bluntly. You never knew what kind of attitude you're going to find them in, what kind of mood you would find them in. They lived in echo chambers. They truly believed they were gods. They would order deaths of people and men, sometimes their own wives, just because they could. If you came into the king's presence with anything less than happiness and Pollyanna thoughts, you could be killed and ushered into oblivion eternity faster than you could, you could blink. If Nehemiah were to come and to say, hey, Artaxerxes, I want you to uh, give me favor, give me leave to go rebuild my hometown that is under your subjugation, under your control, that could be seen as disloyal. That could be seen as a threat to the kingdom. 
So Nehemiah is battling this tension of a burden of God that's been placed upon him and trying not to catch Xerxes on a bad day, or more specifically, in a bad second or a bad moment. What you could describe this as is the fear of God versus the fear of man. As we looked at last week, when the fear of God captures our hearts, it controls our hearts, the fear of God overrules every secondary or every lesser fear. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. What do we do with people that we, that we fear? What do we do with situations that are impossible but, but God? Well, Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, helps us here. He has a wonderful thought summary that says this, It is possible to move men to God through prayer alone. Now, that's an unusually constructed sentence. I'm just simply quoting it, but I'm going to say it again. Oswald Sanders, it is possible to move men to God through prayer alone. Difficult people, impossible situations. The reality is, the question we need to ask ourselves is, is, am I just simply talking about it or am I praying about it? I think if we're honest, sometimes we'll just find ourselves trying to find the answer within our own wisdom and our own abilities Or we'll talk about it. We'll try to talk to those that we know and try to gain wisdom and glean wisdom from peers and friends and people that can help us to have insight. But if we're honest, far too often we're talking to others more than we're spending time in intercessory prayer. It's in this four-month window that I truly believe that Nehemiah doesn't just pray a one-off prayer and then abandon that and continue on his merry life and uh, losing his burden, enjoying his cush job in the palace. But it's during that four-month window that he is processing. He's wrapping his mind around the scope of it all. He's dreaming. I think he's truly dreaming about what God could do. He's also dreading. He's praying. And he's slowly overcoming his fear of the king. He's praying. A.J. Gordon says it like this, You can do more than pray after you have prayed But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I just want you to know, when we spend time in prayer, God is always working. And I want you to put the emphasis on this. He's working on you. When we think about praying, it's not like you and I are twisting God or manipulating Him. God leads our hearts to pray, and He's working on us. He's working on others, no doubt. But most importantly, he's working on us. You remember the children's song, don't you? Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Evidently, you guys don't know that song. We might need to to introduce. I'm just kidding. There's truth in it. It's not my, it's not Hannah and I, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Remember, as you're praying, God is working in you and on you. And as Nehemiah is doing just that for this season, this gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2, God is also obviously working in Xerxes. Friends, it's a 
reminder to us that in any given moment, on any given day, what I'm about to say is the understatement of the century. But God is doing an unfathomable work on a myriad of levels to accomplish his work for his own glory. Isaiah 40, verse 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will gain new strength. Prayerful, yet proactive. How can we be proactive in prayer? Isaiah 40, 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain, renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not become faint. God is preparing his man for the work. So number one, Nehemiah's caution. Secondly, Nehemiah's courage. The day comes as Nehemiah is clocking in and doing his ordinary humdrum living He's going in and he's fulfilling his duties to the king. We saw last week that the cupbearer, don't minimize it to simply tasting and being a taste tester and drinking the wine and eating the food. He was a confidant of the king. Some uh, uh, commentators said he could be as highest as, in a sense, a prime minister to the king. And on a very basic sense or a minimal sense, he's one of the most influential people in the king's cabinet because he's literally never leaving the king's side. He has great sway. He has a lot of conversations with the king. The king bounces ideas off of him. For Nehemiah to be in this position, he's trusted. He's a man of character. He's a man of planning. He's a leader. And the king can give him things and he can expedite them and oversee them. And also his life can be the first one on the line if someone attempts to assassinate the king. Notice there in chapter 2 verse 1, when the wine was set before him, Nehemiah says this, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. We don't know how long Nehemiah has been both carrying the burden and serving the king No doubt there are times the king is out of the palace, he's not present. There's times where he's in. We don't quite know what the schedule was. But what Nehemiah makes clear is that he has been able to carry this burden before the Lord, but yet it's not been visible on his face. This has been between him and the Lord alone, as Jesus instructed. This type of burden has been one he's been taking before the throne of grace in the prayer closet, in the hidden place. In the hidden man of the heart. But like all of us, when your husband or your wife says, what are you thinking about? And you say, what are you talking about? Yet you're at dinner and your mind is wandered off and you don't even realize it, but you're in another place even though you're here. Even though you're here, you're not really here. Nehemiah is evidently in a situation to where his face reveals his heart. Just like Proverbs 15, verse 13 says, By sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. Nehemiah finds himself in this broken state where the king is seeing it. That's a reminder to us that the Christian is one who lives his life not only before men, but he lives it before God, before the face of God. And now... As he's living quorum Deo before the eyes of God, a life of integrity, a life of prayer. Now he comes and his heart becomes aligned 
with his face, or his face becomes aligned with his heart. And the king asks him of this burden. Now, evidently, Nehemiah had a certain type of personality. Some people are the type of people that are steady eddies. They're not necessarily emotionally up and down. We're all emotional, physiological creatures. We get that. But evidently, Nehemiah was a steady, consistent person. That, that was his bent. That was his personality. The king knew what to expect from him, and he did not know what to expect from the king. But here we see Nehemiah's fear of God and courage in Yahweh enabling him to do a very difficult task. I want us in the subheading to notice this. Nehemiah's courage enables him to speak the truth. Notice with me verse 3. And look at Nehemiah's just transparency and his honesty. Even though he is a leader, even though he's a spiritual man, he's not John Wayne. And you know what I mean by that. He's not evoking some type of image that is in one gear. Here in his journal, Let of the Spirit, he reveals to us, So I became dreadfully afraid. At this moment, when the king asks him this question, all of a sudden, he is controlled with fear. He's been analyzing this. He's been thinking about this. He's been preparing for this. He's ready for this. But it's a reminder to us that even in all these moments, no matter how spiritual you are, sometimes there's a frog in your throat. And here he reveals to us, I became dreadfully afraid. Now, notice his respect. Sometimes people lose the tension that is present as we think about serving earthly masters. And yet, all of a sudden, that's just taken away or dissipated because we're serving Jesus. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes people become so spiritual, they begin to treat their bosses like jerks for the sake of the mission. And here Nehemiah models for us, there's a respect to both King Xerxes, and there's reverence and worship for the God of heaven alone. But God has put Nehemiah right where he's at. Notice what he says, may the king live forever. This is respectful, but it's also expedient. In other words, king, I'm not in the middle of a plot to take your life. So just because I have a sorrowful, broken heart, don't think for a second that I'm caught up with guilt or I'm scared or I'm trembling because there's poison in the cup. <laughs> so know that my wish and my desire is may the king live forever. But notice his courage. Again, Nehemiah's courage enables him to speak the truth. All of a sudden, in the fearful, hidden man of the heart where he says, and I was suddenly afraid. What happens? Why should my face not be sad? When the city and the place of my father's tombs lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. I think immediately God, as Nehemiah will confess in just a few verses, his hand was upon me. I think the king witnesses boldness. The king knows what type of boldness this is. The king knows the courage that's being revealed. The king knows Nehemiah very well and no doubt respects him and knows that Nehemiah respects him. This is huge. Just like it was huge for Esther to risk her life and to come into the presence of the king uninvited as we saw a few weeks ago. May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? You know, we live in an age that's trying to put band-aids over their souls. 
our culture and our society wants people to think that you're the master of your fate. That if you just think positive self-help thoughts, that'll help you overcome your guilt before God. Say daily verbal affirmations to yourself. Now listen, I'm not ultimately against those things. What I'm just trying to tell you is that they don't replace the grace of God in Christ that we so desperately need. And so as we go into our work weeks and as we go into our days, if you're truly a child of God, friends, there's going to be times you're just broken. You're grieved. And I'm just going to tell you, the people in your life that God has graciously put into your life, they're not always going to understand it. And they're going to say, what's wrong with you? Why is your face so sad? Come on, we don't need all that. Hey, don't be a drain. Don't be an energy vampire. We all know what those are. We're not espousing to be one of those. But you get the idea. They only know the world through self-help lingo and ideologies. And there's times in our life where we just got to say, why should my face not be sad? I'm broken. I'm grieved. Because my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is blasphemed. Well, we see Nehemiah's courage enables him to speak the truth. Moving quickly, Nehemiah's courage comes from God there in verse 4. Notice, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Friends, this is one of those moments to where you see in the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life of intercessory prayer or just a category of prayer, as some of you have asked, is there a place for both the place of prayer, like where we get up in the morning and we have our coffee and we open the scriptures and we spend time praying, but is there a place for other kinds of prayer? And the answer is absolutely. We call them help Jesus, help Lord, help now. That's all we know to say. Help. We call them SOS prayers. We offer them up as fast as you can imagine, as fast as you can think. Oh, this is it. This is, this is the moment Nehemiah is thinking. And we see his courage comes from God. Immediately, Nehemiah follows the well-worn paths that are worn in his brain where he says, God, help. Oh, God of heaven. We see his courage comes from God. Spurgeon says this, the place of prayer is good. But the spirit of prayer is better. And what Spurgeon means is this. Don't be one of those that prays and checks your box and you leave it there. Your prayer in the morning and you're praying over the prayer list and you're praying over the lost and you're praying over all those things is good. But if it's not lived with shoe leather in your marriage and if it's not lived with shoe leather in your parenting and if it's not lived with shoe leather in practicality, at, at the workplace or wherever you live the majority of your life, then, friend, you're, you're missing the point. The spirit of prayer, being bathed in prayer, sanctifying things in prayer is better. We find that Nehemiah's courage comes from God. Fifthly, notice that in verse 5, Nehemiah's courage enables him to communicate. And he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight... I ask that you would send me to Judah. I'm asking for a sabbatical here. I ask that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. 
Did you say what I think you just said, Nehemiah? That you may rebuild a place that I control, that we have decimated those people. We have brought them, all up, scattered them to the winds, and you're wanting to go back and build a place that has been crushed? In fact, you're wanting to go back and rebuild, going against the decree that I've said, cease and desist? Now, there's two things happening here. We cannot minimize both. One is the favor of God. One is the sovereignty of God at work in the heart of the king. And you know what's coming next, because it's appropriate. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it however he will. We cannot underestimate that. We also cannot underestimate Nehemiah's character, a life that goes with this request, a man that's faithful in the charge that God has given to him, where the king would say, Sure, Nehemiah, listen, I love you, I respect you, you're a faithful servant. Sure, now maybe it's a stretch for, for, to imagine the king saying, I love you, I'll admit that, maybe I said that too flippantly, but it's obvious that Nehemiah has a relationship and character and rapport with this pagan king. So to try to minimize that would really to do, be, to do all of us a disservice this morning. What are you trying to say, Legrand? Here's what I'm trying to say is your, your reputation matters. Your, your character matters. How you go about your Monday through Friday matters. If you serve the Lord in a particular way, this evening, if you set aside time to, to do intentional ministry, as we've been praying about, as we've been desiring to be used to the Lord, to have particular meetings and conversations... But you're a jerk at work. You're, you're frequently late or whatever. The, the Holy Spirit applies. Listen, you're, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Here we see Nehemiah's life backs up his request. And the king looks to him as he's communicating this request. If I found favor in your sight, would you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs? Notice the king's response in verse 6 is one of being pleased. God has turned his heart. The king is pleased with this request. He's not threatened by it. This speaks of rapport and a long-standing relationship. In verse 6, it says this, Then the king said to me, Now notice here, The queen also sitting beside him. The king said to me, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. I hope I'm not reading into this text too much, but it seems to me as if the king is realizing and understands that Nehemiah has been a faithful servant, has sacrificed, has done everything the king has asked of him. And now is a chance for the king to show him a tangible expression of his gratitude. Again, talking about impossible situations, a mercurial leader who can just kill people on the spot. We're not trying to make in any sense that this man is a righteous man. Xerxes is not a righteous man. Artaxerxes is, is not a, a God-fearer. But this is what you call the power of a life being lived in real time. This is called personal influence. It pleased the king to look at him and say, listen, how long will your journey be? Imagine you go into your boss and you say, can I have a, an extra week of vacation? Or can I take a sabbatical? And your boss says, sure. How long do you think it's going to be? Three weeks? Three years? How about never? How about just don't come back ever? You know, we're good if you just don't ever come back. Here the king is saying, no, no, no. The king is saying, 
Sure. Now, when do you think you'll return? Like, in other words, I'm granting your request. We want you back. When do you think you can make it back? So it pleased the king, verse 6, it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Here we see Nehemiah's value to the king, and his courage enables him to live in this moment, to be prepared for such a time as this. Notice in verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah now is on a roll. God's hand is upon him. He sees that Xerxes' heart is turned towards him. He recognizes that this moment is of the Lord. And now Nehemiah's courage enables him to communicate the needs that he has. Because there are needs. Remember we were talking about the impossible situation? Here we have a a project with a scope and size that we have no idea how much. We don't know what the budget is even supposed to be. He's 800 miles away. How does he know what to ask for? But it's obvious that as Nehemiah, listen, has been prayerful, he's also been proactive. He's been thinking. He's been planning. He's been saying, God, I'm plowing the rows. Would you bring the rain? Lord, I'm pulling the seed out and I'm walking out, preparing. I'm staging. I'm dreaming. It would look like this. One, and then two, and then three, and then four. But Lord, the whole time, you've got to work or this thing. If you don't bring the rain, it's all lost. Nehemiah is proactive and prayerful. And here we see the proactive side of it all. He's ready. He's pregnant in his response with meaning of saying, boom, 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 boom. He says, listen, O king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to be sent to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple and for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. He's thought enough to know I've got to stay somewhere. If I'm going to be the project manager over this project, there's no Hampton Inns. I need wood. I need timber. I need, I need provisions. So I need wood for the temple, the wall, and the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me. Now notice, Nehemiah is not suddenly becoming intoxicated with his own charisma. He's not becoming bloated and is thinking, saying, there's some, look who's on a roll today. Look who has the heart of the king in his hands. Not at all. Notice what Nehemiah says. The king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Nehemiah asked the king for two things, for certificates, passports, letters, authorizations, because he knows he's nobody. Who is he? He's the son of Hakaliah, the brother of Hananiah. He's the king's cupbearer. And as he comes asking for timber and wood, as he pulls up and says, here's the, here's the work order, here's what we need, They're going to look at him and be like, and who are you? Who do you think you are? Nehemiah's already thought through all of this. Last week we mentioned this, unconscious preparation. God has had Nehemiah in the throne room, watching leaders from all over the empire come do business with Xerxes. He's seen how this stuff works. He's seen people come and go. He's seen people go and have not thought through the the, the articles that they would need. And they came and he just, ah. King, I I need a certificate from you so that Asaph will let me have the wood uh, that we need for the project. King, we forgot to ask you that. And Nehemiah has thought to himself, check, check, check. 
You say, what's your point? The point is this, is God is always preparing you for what he wants you to do. And none of it's wasted. You may be asking yourself, why am I sitting here as the king's cupbearer? And the Lord will reveal in his time that that preparation is not going to be wasted. He's working in you. He's working on you. He's working all around you. And here we see Nehemiah's unconscious preparation taking off and being put to God-glorifying use. He has a plan. He asks for all of these things. The king goes above and beyond and even provides him. If you notice in the following verse, he presents soldiers to go with him. Notice verse 9, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. It's estimated that his journey would be an eight to 900-mile journey one way. And he sends soldiers to protect the mission. Well, that leads us lastly to number three. Not only Nehemiah's caution, Nehemiah's courage. Number three, I want you to note Nehemiah's commission. Again, we notice there in verse eight, the letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Here we see a duality, a horizontal earthly perspective of a commission given to him at the king's request, the king's favor. But there's another king involved here that Nehemiah recognizes. The hand of my good God, the good hand of God was upon me. This is the vertical commission that God is blessing this mission and this, this effort. Well, we've exposited the text. Before we close this morning, I want to consider just a few moments here, some points to ponder, some application points that I pray the Lord will help us to apply to our hearts and our lives. The first one I just want to note is this. What we've seen here in chapter 2 is this. If we're going to learn to serve God faithfully, we must learn to wait on Him. That means his ways, his timing, the Lord's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. Surprise, right? Listen, we are as weak as water. We think we're smart, we think we're gifted, and we often forget that nothing we possess, as Paul says, what do you have that was not first given to you from and of the Lord? To serve God faithfully We must learn to wait on Him. And it's in that waiting that we pray. It's in that waiting that we can plan. It's in that waiting that we are prayerful and strategize. But it's in that waiting that we know that the Lord must open the door. And we cannot kick it down. And you say, well, how do I know? Well, I'll just put it like this. You know when you're kicking a door down. And you know when a door is open to you. Oftentimes, that's the practical next steps. LeGrand, how can I know whether this is me or how can I know whether this is God? And the best way I know how to answer that is is if you're kicking the door down, you know it. If the Lord is bringing providential people in your path and they're asking you questions, things are happening in such a way that the Spirit of God reminds you in that moment, Lord, this is exactly what I prayed about and this is your doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. If you know, 
you know. Now, some of you are mad right there because you don't like that. You want more of a one, two, three, how to, and I don't know how to give it to you. But I'll just say this, pray and the Lord will lead you. But you and I should know when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, purchased and bought by him and being led into the truth, whether we're kicking that door down and you hear the splinters, the steps of a good man, listen, are ordered by the Lord. And so are the stops. And when the Lord shuts something down and when the Lord stops, we don't keep going. We say, Lord, lead us, help us, show us. Secondly, what we see here at Nehemiah's life here in chapter 2 is to serve God realistically, we must learn to work with people. Now, I'm trying to draw that out in some different ways, but the Lord knows exactly who all's in your life. He knows who's in your family. He knows who you're married to. He knows who your children are. He knows who your parents are. He knows who your co-workers are. He knows who your neighbors are. God knows all about them. Nehemiah had to learn how to work with people. That's going to be a key thing we continue to see as we move in the book of Nehemiah. We, we didn't get to it chapter 10 because we'll get to it next week. But immediately, as soon as he gets there, Nehemiah immediately faces opposition. Nehemiah has to learn how to work with his relatives, his brethren. He has to learn how to work for a mercurial king who's unstable. He has to learn how to work with opposition. He has to learn how to work with people who are grieving, who says, you know what, we've tried that, we've been there, we've done that, and it didn't work. And he has to give them hope again. He has to not only tell them what to do, he has to come alongside them and walk with them through the project. And we'll see how he does that. You could say it like this, demoralized believers. He has to learn how to work with enemies. But oftentimes, Laboring and working for the Lord means we have to learn how to work with people. Can we just be honest, church? That's a rhetorical question, and it would help me if you said yes. Can we just be honest, church? The hardest part about ministry is people. It just is. The hardest part about the gospel is people. The hardest part about discipleship is people. And I just want to encourage all of us to know that there's no perfect magic places. There's no perfect marriages. There's no perfect homes. There's no perfect churches. There's no perfect businesses. And in the world that we live in today, we have this mirage. We have this an illusion that it's just all better over there. Because all we see is the best of, of everybody else's whatever. Today, you will hear reports, and, I, and I don't, I'm not jaded when I say this, so please don't, don't hear it like this, but when you hear of ministry reports or your pastor friends or your brethren or your sisters report what a good service they had or breaking numbers or whatever, learn to rejoice with them. Learn to rejoice with those who rejoice. Learn to say right off the fruit of your lips, I rejoice with you. Praise God for what he's doing in your life. Praise God for how he's answered that prayer. Praise it is such a freeing thing to be able just to rejoice at the good hand of God upon our lives. But don't think for a second that there's no problems there. Don't think for a second that it's that all glitters is gold. And the reason I emphasize that is, is that we live in a mirage where only the best is put forth. But you didn't see all the messes today. 
you, you didn't see all the difficult conversations. You didn't see the people that didn't show up. You didn't see the, they, they, we don't post that stuff. <laughs> we only post the things that are encouraging. And I'm not even trying to overanalyze that. I'm just trying to encourage our hearts just to say this. This world is a mirage. But I want to encourage us in that. that look, listen, friends, this right here is real. This up here is not real. This right here is real as we pray together, as we shake hands together, as we talk to each other, as we carry one, another, one another's burdens. We have to learn in the work of the gospel ministry how to learn to work with one another. And we'll see this example in Nehemiah's life. In conclusion, I'll have two final points. Number one, or excuse me, fourthly, remember this, God's delays are not God's denials. God's delays are not God's denials. And whatever it is you're praying for and God has not answered yet, don't grow discouraged. Learn to trust in His wisdom and in His response. His no is an answer. We often think of the Lord's answerings to our prayer requests. Well, the Lord didn't answer our requests. He's silent. Well, that's an answer. It may be a delay, but it doesn't mean always a complete denial. Just learn to trust Him and to walk with him. And the final thing I want to leave with us this morning as we apply this text is simply this. The hand of my God was upon me. How, how do you explain anything in your life? How do you explain your salvation? How do you explain you? How do you explain your being here this morning? How do you explain any measure of profitability at work? How do you explain any success on the court? How do you explain the joys of your life? How do you explain anything and everything? It's this, the hand of our God is upon us. The hand of our God is upon me. The hand of our God is upon you. Friends, this is humbling. This causes us to recognize that we are nothing and can't do anything apart from Him. In Nehemiah's succinct statement, the hand of my God was upon me. Because of Nehemiah's confession of that reality, he can do what God has tasked him to do. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we conclude right there that your grace provided for us through Jesus Christ our Lord, the hand of Christ is upon us. Father, all is of your grace. We love you and we worship you. And we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to purchase us, to buy us back from our sin. Father, our sin separates us from a holy God. And through the work of Christ, Father, you bought us back. You redeemed us. You purchased us at the cost of the shed blood of Christ. Father, we give you all the praise and glory and honor for the work of your son. Christ, thank you for your shed blood. Holy Spirit, thank you for leading us into the truth, for convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Holy Spirit of God, thank you for growing us in the faith. Thank you for opening our eyes, leading us, convicting us, prompting us, emboldening us. Father, all of these things are the work of our good God, your hand being upon us. 
So we look to you with eyes of courage and hope and faith. Whatever impossible situations that your children, your people are living in and going through, Father, we pray that you'd help us to be faithful in Christ, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Submit to your will. Be led of your spirit, saying, God, would you help us to honor you in this trial, in this joy, in this circumstance. Would you help us to do it as unto the Lord and not unto men alone? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.